Hey folks, thanks for joining me on this episode of Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on the product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, you're sure to waste a few minutes listening to what I have to say, and I hope you find it interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. If you can't find me on the platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and I'll get that taken care of. I also generally live stream recording of these episodes on YouTube on Wednesday nights around 9.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. And you can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the exact same handle. I have a website at www.embellishpod.com that also... Uh, is a place to pick up some of these links, episode details, and even some one-off tasting notes. Today is December the 22nd. We're rapidly approaching Christmas, and tonight we're going to be talking about American Single Malt. Before we get into that, we always do a little bit of pre-show chat. Um, and today's pre-show chat, let's talk about it. Well, I can't talk about too much. I, I really want to get into this, but... Um, Today, I had an opportunity to see the new Spider-Man movie that came out. Um, as a kid, Spider-Man was sort of one of my um, favorite comic books to read. Between that and, and, and um, Batman, those were the, sort of like my, my top two. And I know they're separate universes, so that creates a lot of problems for a lot of uh, comic book geeks. But, you know, I, I really kind of attached to that. And so I've, I've followed the series. And I'll say that this movie, um, without any spoilers, um, is both fantastic and awful at the same time. Uh, a lot of the reasons that make it great also sort of make it uh, painful. Um, it was a good watch. I went by myself. I have a wife and two daughters. And I, none of them are interested in the movies. Um, so, you know, that's... That's where I just end up sitting in a movie theater at a matinee with a bunch of families uh, and sort of looking like a creep, but that's okay. Um, for whatever reason, it doesn't look like it's transitioned to my video over yet. I'm trying to watch on the uh, YouTube side of things. Maybe it is. That's why. Yep, my, it was paused. Sorry. Um, One of the things that the ending of this movie is too tidy, and if you get an opportunity to see it, you obviously will. Um, there's some, you know, post credits, uh, scenes that are going to give some insight into things in the future, which is something that Marvel always does. Uh, I saw a meme. It was like, you know, a bunch of people sitting in a, a movie theater 20 minutes after the movie was over, uh, cause we're all waiting on the next Marvel end scenes. Um, you know, I, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this one thing. It won't necessarily give anything away. But after the fact, if you go watch this movie, it may connect with you. Um, the crafters of this movie created a situation that let Spider-Man get a taste of what, he, what being Tony Stark would be like and then let him choose to not have that anymore. Like I said, it was a really tidy ending. You get, you know, you, you've seen all of the, the um, villains, so there's no surprises there. I'll leave the rest of it kind of out there uh, at some point in time. Hopefully someone will reach out to me like, hey, let's talk about this movie um, because I, I need to talk to people about it. I need to talk to old people. Uh, I have a, a kid that I work with, and he's probably 24 years old and I'm on you know, the invert, inverted dyslexic version of it, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
it's hard to talk to him. You know, his 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 concept of of Spider-Man is largely framed on, you know, Andrew Garfield and and, and Tom Holland in mind is framed up, framed on actual books. Um there's a stack of them underneath this desk right now um that I happened to dig back out uh, because of the Venom and Carnage series. That was one of my favorites and that that movie that just came out. I wanted to relook at those before um before I watched the movie which was an okay movie as well. If you happen to catch this week's earlier episode, I, I live in western Kentucky, very, very close to the communities that were impacted. Um, if you haven't watched the previous video, please hop back to that. Go give it a look. Um, there's some really important links that are uh, inside the show description of that, uh, an opportunity to um, help people. To be able to do the things that you know this this particular community is really really good at, and that's you know making sure folks that are are taken care of. Um, but today uh, today's episode, we'll actually get into it. Um, may try to run short. I was overwatching the mash and drum, and I may try to burn through this one relatively fast, so that way I can go back and watch it some more uh, while they're still live streaming. It was a it was a good episode or good series video. I don't know what you call it. Um, I'd hope to have some some solid information from TTB around American single malt for uh, this episode. I've been planning it since last month. Um, you know, I read some indication that, T that TTB was going to be publishing, potentially publishing some standards of identity for American single malt whiskey in the United States uh, that was brought to them by the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, which we've talked about before in other episodes. Um, and they had indicated they were going to make a ruling this month, and they didn't. I found myself, you know, going at least once a week to TTB's website, looking at their newsletters, their publication feeds, just trying to, you know, hopefully get some indication that they're moving forward on it. And if it did happen, and you know about it, um, and I missed it, flag me. Just let me know. Um, but I think maybe starting with what they're proposing is a little bit too far-fetched. Uh, most serious bourbon fans understand, or at least have a, a basic understanding of what standards of identity are. And standards of identity were brought forward to unify uh, the offering, uh, the, the particular offering, whether it be bourbon or rye or um, a, a number of other things, corn whiskey, kind of set a level playing field, but also prevent people from tossing things in there that shouldn't be in there, you know, additive color, additive flavor, uh, a number of different things, you know, sort of protecting the reputation of the flavor of the thing that exists out there. And so you start with this basic definition um, within TTB of what whiskey is. And whiskey, by TTB's definition, is an alcoholic distillate that is made from a fermented mash of grain produced at less than 190 proof in such a manner that the distillate possesses the taste, aroma, and characteristics generally attributed, attributed to whiskey stored in oak containers, um, except for corn whiskey. Corn whiskey doesn't need to be stored in, in oak containers, and bottled at no less than 80 proof, and also includes a mixture of such distillates for which no specific standards of identity are prescribed. Um, and so... it. There's a lot of information that's kind of tossed in there. So the first step is, is that it's got to be a fermented mash of, of some type of grain to be whiskey. Um, so, you know, that that's a pretty broad category. We've talked about alternative grains before. Um, has to be less than 190 proof. And so you're getting 
getting above 190 proof, you're getting, you know, very, 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 very clear grain at that point and or grain alcohol and maybe not getting a whole lot of body or flavor left behind um, because you're getting as pure as you possibly can. And, you know, you get this line that's, you know, they want to, um, the distillate possesses the taste of Roman characteristics attributed to whiskey. Um, that's nebulous and you can't really do anything about that. Stored in oak containers, that, that'll be, you know, a unique thing that we kind of toss forward. You don't see a ton of other types of wood casks out there to begin with. Um, has a lot to do with the structural integrity of, of oak, how it handles uh, wet situations, uh, how long it lasts, how permeable it is, and a number of different things, but needs to be in an oak container of some type. Notice it doesn't say anything about a barrel. It doesn't say anything about um, charring, you know, none of that. So just whiskey in general does those things, and then it has to be bottled at not less than 80 proof. You start getting lower than 80 proof, you're starting getting into, um, I don't know, cordial territory or some other thing. And also, this last line is the part that throws me off on, on the standards of identity for whiskey. It also includes mixtures of such distillates for which no specific standards of identity are prescribed. Um, so it could have mixed into it other things uh, and still be considered just plain whiskey. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a pretty broad definition, leaves a lot of things open. Um, but then whenever you dive deeper into TTB, TTB respects Scotch, Irish, and Canadian whiskeys. Um, and so they adhere to whatever the standards are for those items. For Scotch, it has to be in Scotland. For Irish, it has to be in Ireland. For Canadian, it has to be in Can in Canada. Almost said Canada. Um, but then within rye and bourbon, you know, all, the rest of us know, you know, 51% corn and charred containers and new oak. No reusing, you know, all of those, those things. Um, but then there's also a definition for... Um, Thanks for being here, Cliff. Um, there's also this this other part that talks about uh, malt whiskey. And malt whiskey uh, has its identified uh, standard, sort of, that exists. Um, so, you know, TTB adheres to malt whiskey being whiskey that's produced at not exceeding 80% alcohol by volume. So, 100 and, um 160 proof, which is similar as the whiskey one before. Fermented of a mash not less than 51% malted barley and stored at not more than 62.5% alcohol by volume. So that's that 125, that magic 125 proof that we talk about in bourbon exists here. And so for malt whiskey, um, you're 51%, exact same thing, but there's no standard of identity for American single malt. And so American Single Malt Commission has kind of taken it on themselves to push forward for a standard of identity in the United States of America. Um, and that is to create their, their particular uh, flavor profile, their particular uh, product, brand, market segment, whatever you want to call it. Um, they're, they're pushing for a standard of identity that has made from 100% from malted barley, distilled entirely at one distillery, uh, mashed, distilled, and matured in the United States of America, matured in oak casks of a capacity not exceeding 700 liters, distilled at no more than 160 proof, which is 80% ABV, and bottled at 80 proof or more. Um, and so you'll notice uh, these mirror pretty closely to the standards of identity for... Um, the standards of identity that exist for uh, scotch. 
but we're doing that here in the United States for American Single Malt. Uh, and the interest is, is that there's a pretty pretty big growth pattern within American Single Malt whiskeys. And um, when you have a growth pattern like that, you're going to have people that are going to want to exploit any loophole they possibly can. And the fact that American Single Malt is not identified, uh, you could be 51% uh, malt. Uh, malted barley in there and 49% corn and still call yourself an American single malt because there's not a standard of identity. Um, they're, they're coming at huge rates. Like they I think uh, looking at like 20, 25% growth, you're seeing um, a lot of distilleries are exploring that as a, as a new place to be because, you know, bourbon is becoming a crowded marketplace. You know, there's distilleries popping up. There's thousands of distilleries across the United States when there's only a couple of hundred several years ago um so what's next you know some people are going the way of cognac and armagnac they think that's the next big thing but i think within the american marketplace american single malt is it uh, it gives us the ability to explore some of the things that scotch and irish whiskey have done over time um but do them in a way that is uniquely american um you know in scotland whiskey can be aged at 50 years. Um, it may only lose 1% of its volume by year in Scotland due to its climate. Uh, whereas if you leave a, a, a barrel of bourbon on the ground here in Kentucky or um, you know some single malt in Virginia or anywhere else, it's going to be bone dry after 25 or 30 years, or at least very, very close to it. It may have something that looks more like um, old coffee than it looks like whiskey. And it just has to do with climate differences, heat swings, temperature changes, and the fact that we're just closer to the equator than than Scotland and Ireland are. Um, the 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 flavors that you get, the colors that you get, the things that you get here in the United States in a single year rival that of what you might see in ten years in Scotland or Ireland. And then they also are able to you to use. Um, ex-bourbon cask, you know, things that might have spent a high degree of its vanillin exchange, its, um, all of the things that are in a barrel that are going to, to change the color, change the flavor, change, do any of those things. Um, you know, it, it, you know, other countries, you know, we've, I talked about, um, Australia before with the guys over at Starward where they can only age for four years unless they do something pretty severe in Texas, You've got people like Still Austin who are doing, uh, if I remember correctly, I think it's called slow water reduction, where they're adding water back in every year to try to keep the proof at a reasonable amount so it can continue to age. Because you know, as it decreases in volume, it increases in proof generically, and then um, it's going to extract differently as a result. And so um, you have these groups of people that are saying, hey, let's push for a standard of identity. Um we're wanting to create a marketplace. We're wanting to create a, a thing, and we want everybody to be on a level playing field. There's nobody doing anything um, with any ill intent, or not necessarily even ill intent, but just in the interest of making a few dollars. You know, people will make a lot of decisions just to make a few dollars. Um, so we'll we'll start tonight. Now I've got a few brands that I want to talk about specifically, um, and I'm beginning with uh, Virginia Distillery. And Virginia Distillery is that um, they're gonna they're gonna hit some of those same notes that we're really used to, and part of me wonders if they're just doing this because that's what fits the the bourbon marketplace where 
uh, people are used to hearing about water. And so they, you know, they get their water, it's spring water fed from the Blue Ridge Mountains, you know. Um, and we've talked about that. Like I said, it, going into the distillation pot, they probably do use spring-fed water. But if they're proofing down their cask or their bottle or whatever, they absolutely are not. Um, because you need clean, pure water to go into those barrels. Because if you use brackish or, or terrible water, you're going to end up with terrible product. So um, they use a hand-hammered copper pot still from Scotland. So it's something that is crafted in Scotland. They're they're trying to get in the same place. And then they're um, aging to try to... to accentuate or um, draw out the best flavors they can from the climate in the in Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains um, and what I've what I've found what I've experienced is around the Blue Ridge Mountains they get a more moderate winter but they also get more significant weather fluctuation throughout the year where they'll have rising and falling temperatures pretty significantly because of the mountains that, that are in the area because you know that's just sort of the way it is um, so we'll start with the, the bottle that I have in hand sitting over there. It's what I'm drinking on, um, next. What I started with is something different, but, um, they have this, this courage and conviction, uh, line that they're doing. And it's, that's their American single malt whiskey and I had an opportunity to pick up a barrel, um, that was a single barrel select that, um, the, the Hood Sommelier from Instagram was involved with. Um, he had put in his Patreon, which is a group that I'm a part of, that, hey, I've got some some of these bottles. If you guys are interested, let me know, and we'll, we'll have arranged to have it couriered to you. And so these 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 are called cuvee casks, uh, which is going to be a, a French term. They're aged a minimum of three years. Um, 100% malted barley whiskey is put in these cuvee casks. And what they're actually doing with these uh, cuvee casks is they take the barrel, uh, I believe it's ex-bourbon barrels, and they shave off the charring and then retoast it and then put the stuff in there. And so what usually happens if you'll uh, go to a distillery, a lot of times they'll show you a cross-section of a stave. And you can see where in some casks uh, the, the whiskey doesn't make it all the way through the barrel stave. It only makes it a portion of the way. And the idea of charring is it gives more surface area for that exchange of of whiskey to wood um, and so i guess what what the idea is, is that by shaving off the existing char and then re-toasting it you're activating activating some of those um, wood flavors that you want and removing some of what would be considered the spent charcoal and you're also removing some of that uh, purification that happens i mean that's the reality is that most of your color is not going to come from charcoal um, if you have a refrigerator with water in the door, if you have a Brita filter, those are charcoal activated and your water doesn't come out brown. Uh, it comes out crystal clear and that's the idea of it. And so you're getting your color, you're getting your flavor, you're getting all those things from the actual wood on the inside. So that's what they're after. Um, you know, this, this particular batch, um, I don't know if it was a part of the first batch or not, but, uh, they, de they dedicated their first round of, of, of this particular series to Nancy Fraley. And we've talked about Nancy Fraley before. She's, you know, key in a lot of different things, specifically Joseph, Joseph Magnus and what they're doing. Um, and a handful of other companies as well. Um, another one. So if you're, you know, if you're trying to figure out American single malt whiskey, I guess maybe this is a, a list of places to, to start looking at least for my, uh, my own interests. Um, we've talked about in the past Stranahan's. We've talked about a handful of other places. Town and Branch does some, which is a traditionally a, a bourbon company. Um, 
kind of look over there and see what I've got. Most everybody, not most everybody, a lot of people are moving into the American single malt category, but um, there's this company in New York, New York City specifically, uh, called Kings County Distillery, and I didn't know anything about them until I started looking into American single malt whiskey maybe nine months, a year ago. Um, and, and I came across a company that is uh, apparently and becoming widely known as a premier craft distillery. And it's one of the most acclaimed small distilleries in the United States, period. They focus almost exclusively, you know, they focus exclusively on whiskey. Um, and they've made their name around bourbon and then stepping out from that peated bourbon and stepping out from that um, Empire Rye. And so with Empire Rye and with bourbon, you're looking at two somewhat guarded versions of a whiskey that they have to follow a standard of identity. So I guess maybe it only makes sense that they're also exploring into American single malt whiskey. Um, they, you know, they, they only distill for their own label. They don't sell their whiskey to any other sources. Um, I guess maybe the, the key here is they don't sell their whiskey to any other source that can then relabel that. And why does that distinction make, why, why did I make that distinction? So um, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know that at the this time last year, uh, I was able to snag a membership to uh, Marion Eve's uh, blind uh, program where she's sending out blind samples um, four times throughout the year, two bottles at a time. And in those blind bottles are some... Um, are some unknown whiskey. Uh, she sent out black Glencairns. She sends tasting notes. Um, it's a really unique experience. But what she revealed here in the last month or so, a couple of weeks, is that every one of these samples is actually directly correlated to a distillery and a non-Kentucky distillery to be specific. Um, kind of exploring uh, what the rest of the United States has to offer when it comes to whiskey. And Kings County, if I remember correctly, was one of those. And so um, they're not selling their whiskeys for any other label, but they are allowing someone else to sell their whiskey with a sort of a different intent and, a, and a, almost a single barrel concept. Um, Kings, Kings, Kings County blends their distilling practices from a variety of different cultures into creative whiskeys. And there's a lot of, you know, they're using Scottish copper pot stills, open fermentation, local grains. Um, a lot of these these marketing terms, not marketing terms, a lot of these talking points can become marketing terms that are pretty standard across all distilleries in the United States. Um, but these craft distilleries, they can't afford to be caught not doing these things. You know, a major distillery, people are going to probably be a little skeptical about anything they claim to begin with. But as soon as you find a small distillery doing something that you don't necessarily think is correct, um, it's a pretty critical moment for that particular company's business. Uh, something that comes to mind pretty heavily uh, is uh, Jay Mattingly. Maybe a year, year and a half ago, um, some pictures popped up on social media that Jay Mattingly was using these, I think they're 35 or 40 gallon plastic trash bins to, to move stuff around. Um, specifically, they were moving whiskey around, if I remember correctly, and people were all up in arms like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're using these trash cans. And the reality is, is if you've ever worked in food services, there's a lot of containers like that that are absolutely sanitized that can be used to transport just about anything. Um, 
You know, a lot of companies are not catching any grief over using IBC totes. And IBC totes are those big um, cube-shaped plastic containers that you often see sitting around farms. There's chemicals inside of them that, that uh, farmers are using to spray their, their fields down with. And you can also buy them for potable water. And you can also buy them to transport um, volatile chemicals, which is exactly what whiskey is. So if they're taking appropriate measures there's nothing really wrong with that other than your perception of oh my gosh this is terrible and so um, all of that to say if you get caught doing something that the american consumer thinks is a little bit weird you may be in significant jeopardy and you sort of have to weather that storm and so they can't afford to say uh, we use scottish copper pot stills and open fermentation and then not actually do it if somebody shows up and catches them they're going to pop it on social media and it's going to be what it is but Kings County has made a significant name for themselves. Um, they uh, have been named the Distillery of the Year in the past. Started with, a, I think, a 400-square-foot uh, location, and then they've grown into something much more significant since then. Um, and, and they're on the, I don't know, if upper end of the, the pay scale is what I'd really get at there, but they offer some, some relatively expensive bottles. Um, of course they're, they're in the craft distilling side of things. So things are going to generically be more expensive. And then moving from that, there's great wagon distilling. So great wagon distilling is, um, living in that American single malt. Whereas the previous two we've talked about are, are rooted very, very much in scotch, uh, whiskey, this one is going to be, you know, Great American Distilling, and then their their particular line, Rua, Rua, I, I assume that's how you pronounce it, um, is going to probably follow something closer to Irish whiskey. Um, they're founded by an Irish native. His name is Oliver Mulligan, um, and it's the oldest distillery in North Carolina, or in Charlotte, North Carolina specifically. Um, has a speakeasy, does a whole lot of different things that are that are going on, but. Um, their purpose is to continue a tradition of celebrating passionate independence everywhere. Um, they want to create spirits that are artful and they want to be craft. Um, and they want to celebrate the preservation of, of um, great wagon road pioneers and contemporary trailblazers alike. Rua specifically is a Gaelic word for redhead. And um, if you buy a bottle of Rua of any type, it has a uh, has a pretty pretty standard red hue to it, so so that kind of goes hand uh, hand in hand here. It's uh, only has three ingredients. It has a hundred percent organic and non GMO two row pilsner barley, um, spring water from North Carolina Blue Ridge Mountains. So we're hearing that story again, and yeast, and that's it. That's all they've got going on here. They do use the Char 3 American White Oak barrels that are going to be pretty standard in in, in the bourbon game. Um, vanilla caramel. Um, and, and it feels like this is probably the way to get into, given given it's, you know what they're doing, given how they're, they're treating it, this is probably the way to get into American single malts if you are a bourbon fan. Um, what the, the cuvee cask is doing, what um, some of the peated stuff that Kings County is doing, um, and then we're going to talk about Westward next, some of the things that Westward is doing or Stern Hands or even um, you know the Colorado whiskey from 291, which has the, the 291 Colorado whiskey, which has a, um, almost an American single malt feel to it. Um, 
they may not be the best place to begin. They're absolutely a place you have to go along your path, but you don't necessarily start there. Um, this may be a great place to start. And then the the last one that I'm going to have tonight specifically is going to be uh, Westward. And whenever I came across Westward, you know, you, when you start looking at American Single Malks, you see Westward and West... I can't remember what the other West one is. Um, Westland, maybe? And they're pretty, you know ubiquitous in this particular brand. Um, but Westward has, and I've been able to hear a number of podcasts with them on it. And someday I would love to absolutely talk to these guys. Um, but they're founded in a location Well, I guess they're, they're, they're crafted in a birthplace of a lot of craft brewing across a craft beer brewing specifically. Um, and from what I've understood, they're founding themselves in a principle that if you start with a bad beer, which is effectively what the beginning of distillation is, is that you're creating a beer uh, that becomes a low one, then becomes your your white dog that then goes into the barrel. Um, they don't believe in shortcuts. They believe in making a good quality beer that if you were to actually just go ahead and turn it into a beer, it would be something people would drink. Um, and they pay attention to their very slow process. Um, they are effectively brewing an artisanal American ale, um, locally malted barley, ale yeast, and slow, low-temperature fermentation. So, taking a little longer to do what they need to do than a lot of other places, but uh, many people that do a slow fermentation or a uh, slow aging, whatever, they feel like it is... Uh, it's taking its time and converting flavors in a more um, useful fashion than in a more efficient fashion. Um, they do their their distillation. They did distill twice through some low reflux pot stills. So we're still talking about pot stills. And I, like I said, I think you'll probably keep the idea of pot stills being in place for most American single malt whiskey as well. And then they're putting their distillate into mature. Um, to, they're trying to get it to mature in lightly charred American oak barrels. The idea to um, impart the appropriate amount of flavor to match up to what they're doing. Um, the one that caught my attention the most, and the one that I have over here, actually in my glass at this moment right now, is their Pinot Noir um, finish. And so... What they're what they're doing is they're trying to create a tribute to Oregon's legendary Willamette Valley, uh, and trying to to use Pinot Noir casks to finish this whiskey to add in some some unique flavor. Um, this one, the reason it catches my eye is is it's straight snobbery. It, realistically, it's straight snobbery. The first time that I started looking at alcohol. And to some degree, food is slightly something more than a mood enhancer or an essential. Uh, was after watching a movie called Sideways, and if you were around in the mid two thousands, you know exactly what this movie is. Um, it swept over our generation of people who were becoming increasingly food and beverage obsessed, and uh, created a bunch of snobs out of people. Uh, Paul Giamatti plays this guy that is just a, a absolute wine snob. And he hits this line about Pinot Noir specifically, and he says it's thin-skinned, temperamental, and in need of constant care and attention. Um, and he was describing Pinot Noir grapes. Um, but it was the first time for me as an American consumer 
consider something other than Cabernet Sauvignon or Chardonnay or just your generic table offerings. And he was talking about it with a degree of care and, and interest that didn't exist at least for, you know, from my understanding in 2005, there wasn't a ton of people that cared about um, food or beverage to that degree. You know, the craft beer scene was taking off and bourbon was beginning to take off, but it was still a significant minority that was playing a role in that. You know, I think this, you know, if the movie came out in, I think, 2005, then it was probably filmed in 2003 or four, And so it's well ahead of its time. But it, you know, it got me into a point where it's like, okay, well, I hear this guy talking about this. I need to go try it. You know, that's, that's, I'm that person. Like, oh, somebody's talking about something that's really interesting. I want to go give it a shot. Um, anytime I'm in the liquor store, they say, oh, you know, what, what are you after? And they'll roll off a list of, you know, four or five different things. Oh, we got some blend and we got some Weller. I'm like, well, I have a bottle of each one of those and I don't buy duplicates because, um, I'm trying to find out if there's a whiskey I don't like. And so I need to try them all to get there. Whenever I hear somebody talking about something that's interesting, I'm absolutely going to want to, you know, give that a shot and see what happens with it. And that's exactly what happened. And I ended up really liking Pinot Noir as a, as a wine specifically. It kind of became my go-to for a while, um, which was weird because I generically like like super dry. Uh, give me a Chianti, something that's going to, you know, make me feel like um, I ate some country ham and it sucked all the moisture out of my mouth. I'm going to be bitter and hateful. Um, but that's, that, that's sort of what it did is it gave me a, another thing to kind of explore and, and look into. And then, you know, as, as, as whiskey starts to boom, you know, as food culture starts to boom, it just kind of, it grows with that. And so, um, I think, you know, I'll kind of go back to this and then we'll probably start wrapping up at this point. Um, I think that American single malt is going to be the next big step in the, the spirits culture in the United States. Um, more craft distillers are picking it up. Major distillers are starting to look at what it's going to take to be able to to be in this mar- in this marketplace. Um, but the reality is, is that I think something like American Single Malt is going to be the craft distillers' um, go-to. It's their place to really explore and do new and unique things. And the fact that they can create their own standard of identity right now is really sort of interesting. Like they're able to write their own future in the same way that bourbon was able to, you know, 40 years ago or whatever it was, whenever they started setting standards of identity for bourbon and they started changing some of those rules to, to meet what they wanted to do in, in the marketplace to begin with. So, um, thanks for joining me tonight or today or whenever you happen to catch this. I uh, hope you found this episode entertaining. And if you did, please leave me a review on whatever platform you have to be consuming this on. Um, leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media or Twitter or Instagram using EmbellishPod. Uh, give me a follow. You can let me know what's going on. Tell me what you like, what you don't like. Um, leave a review anywhere. I don't care if it's bad. Just let me know, like, oh, I'm interested in this. Oh, I like this. Or, no, I don't like this. I don't like what you're doing. I think you're terrible. That, that's all fine. I have thick skin. You don't do this. Um, if you're going to get your feelings hurt the first time somebody tells you what they did was terrible. Uh, I can be found at www.embellishpod.com with all of my links, accounts, contact details, whatever. Uh, I'll be back again next week with a new offering for you. And next week is going to be a fun episode. I've actually got to do a little bit more work to make this happen, but I'm going to have um, Robbie and Cole from Chill Filtered Podcast on. We're going to be doing a blind tasting of a couple of whiskeys that I absolutely know that they've never had before. And the fun thing about, and we'll probably talk about constructing blinds and what that is and any other thing that we happen to talk about. Uh, I usually try to stay around 35 minutes, but with these guys, I'm going to just let the clock run. Uh, we'll talk until we're done talking. I don't have anywhere to be. 
Um, it's going to be in the middle of the day on like a Tuesday. Uh, we're all off work. We'll just sort of see what happens. But we'll talk about um, what it means to do a blind. And one of the great things about hosting a blind with people is that you get to pretend like you know something. Because I know what it is. And I know what the notes are supposed to be based off of what everyone in the world told me. Um, but I get to walk these two guys through it who I believe um, have good palates and have the ability to identify stuff. Uh, and I don't have to pretend like I know anything because I've got it all written down. So um, until then, uh, if, if you get an opportunity, absolutely join us. Um, thanks for hanging out tonight.